Well, good evening, Hallows Church. It's good to see you again. Uh, again, my name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors within the Hallows, specifically within the West Seattle Expression. Um, for those of you who have never met, I'm also the pastor that tells bad jokes when I preach, so I appreciate your help ahead of time. No, in all seriousness, it's so good to see you again. I'm grateful for the opportunity to serve in this capacity. You know, I feel like I need to warn you guys ahead of time. As pastors, uh, we are not allowed um, to preach the word in such a way that, that takes away from what the text is saying. We, we come under the authority of the word, and so whenever we come to a text that's particularly challenging, uh, we have to allow that challenge uh, to hit us. And so when it comes to tonight, I, I just felt the need to warn you ahead of time that this, this section tonight is going to feel pretty intense, and it's going to feel pretty intense uh, almost all the way through it. But if, if we do our job well, um, if we, you know, I'm just going to pray again here in a moment. We're going to ask the Spirit to really help the gospel make even more sense than ever before towards the end. But I just wanted to warn you ahead of time, this is an intense moment when Jesus is confronting these Pharisees and these scribes. And so it's going to feel intense for us perhaps for a little while. So let me pray for us again before we get started. God, we're so grateful to gather as your church. What a blessing. What a joy to have a church family like the Hallows. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to serve in this capacity. Um, I love the Hallows. I love my church family. And and so, God, I ask that um, my weakness would not get in the way of what you want to do tonight. And I praise you, God, that the Holy Spirit um, is our strong provider um, and he can help us to understand the words. He can prick our hearts and help us to understand and teach us where we are falling short. But most of all, God, I pray for your power to understand the gospel tonight in a way that will refresh and bring hope to our hearts. God, thank you again for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that you are true. Thank you that you are good and your love is forever. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let me invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 1, we're going to go through verse 13 tonight. Now the scene is set here at the beginning when we see that there's these two groups of people that are going to approach Jesus. One is the Pharisees and one is the scribes. If we were to go and look back in previous accounts and or previous sections in the Gospel of Mark, we would see that these previous encounters with these two specific groups of people have not been very positive at all. In fact, oftentimes these groups will approach Jesus and they'll ask a question, not because they're humble in their hearts and because they want to receive from Jesus, but because they want to correct him. They don't like what he's doing, and so they're going to come up and they're going to do it once again. And, you know, this is also the same group who at one point, I believe back in Mark chapter 3, would accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. So there, there's the... A little bit of, sorry, there's a lot of bit of animosity coming from the Pharisees and from the scribes coming towards Jesus, but it's not just that. You see, these groups existed in various parts throughout the region this day. This specific group of people is coming from Jerusalem. And so not only do we have these two groups of people who represent um, the religious life of the Jews in this day because they are religious leaders, but they also represent the epicenter of Jewish life and thought and culture and religion, Jerusalem. And so in a way, it's as if the people of Israel and the history of their attitude towards God and towards his word is going to come to a head in this moment when they are face to face with Jesus. And it says that they come to him 
Verse 2, they had seen some of his disciples were eating bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. So it's introducing this idea of ceremonial purity, ritual cleanness. Verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So this, this section, this introduction here is about some kind of ritual cleanness. And this is a big deal in this day, and it's not just, it's not about hygiene, it's about when you look at the Old Testament, um, what this is ultimately pointing to is it's ultimately pointing towards entering the presence of God. You would see that the Levites um, in the Old Testament were given instructions about ritual purity. There are certain washings that they had to go through before they could enter um, the tent of meeting when there was a tabernacle or before they could enter um, the temple. Or there were times when the people of Israel had specific washings that they had to go through when maybe there was a season of ritual uncleanness that, and they had to go through these washings. And again, the whole point of it wasn't an issue of hygiene. It was, how can I approach the presence of God? And because it's about approaching the, the, the presence of God, ultimately what we're going to see this is about is worship. This is an issue of worship that's being discussed here in this text. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes are going to come up to Jesus. They're asking him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat their bread with impure hands? Now, on the surface, this may seem like a legitimate question. You know, if, if having some ritual purity is about approaching the presence of God, if it's about having some kind of participation in the worship of Israel, this question on the surface seems like it's legitimate. But when we look a little closer at it, we can see that their motives aren't exactly pure. And the reason why is everything in that question, um, there's some things in that question that aren't necessary. If they were really concerned about a ritual purity, if they were really concerned about a particular type of ceremonial cleanness, all they would have to say in this moment is, why do your disciples eat bread with impure hands? That would be sufficient to really get to the point if this was in their minds about worship. But we see that it's not. In the Greek, there's another question, there's another portion that comes first, and therefore it's that way in the English. And what is that? Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? That's the leading question. And that's what they're really after. And if, if we can phrase it another way, it would be like this. Why do your disciples not do as we do? And so in the context of ceremonial cleanness and worship and all of these matters, Jesus is doing one of the things that he does best. And he's exposing who we really are. He's exposing who the Pharisees and the scribes really are in this moment. When on the surface it sounds like a good question, Jesus being in his presence, there's just something about him that exposes the true condition of our worship, isn't it? 
whenever we come face to face, in this moment when they came face to face literally with him, but whenever we come face to face with Jesus through the scriptures or when we come face to face with him through the exercise of the gifts within the body, there's just ways that it drags out from us the true condition of our worship. And oftentimes we find that it's not what we thought it was. And Jesus has an appropriate response. It's a harsh response, but it's appropriate. Because again, these guys are the leaders. They're the leaders of the religious life of Israel. And we're going to find out that what they're spreading is really dangerous. He would say to them, and we see in verse 6, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the command of God. You hold to the tradition of men. Now to understand what a hypocrite is in those days, the the origin of the word was essentially someone who would maybe stand in an amphitheater or in a position where they are conducting some kind of acting. And what they would do is you would have uh, this person standing there just as they are and they would take a mask and they would put this mask over their face and therefore portray someone else than who they really are. And when that part was done, they'd take the mask off, they'd pick up another one and put that mask on. And this was what it meant to be a hypocrite and Jesus is pointedly telling them, you are hypocrites in thinking this way. But in doing so, he actually points to Isaiah 29. And we're going to come back to Isaiah 29 in just a moment, but he's going to quote from Isaiah 29, 13, and what he's going to unveil, that this is not just a problem that Israel was dealing with. This is not just a problem that people were dealing with in this day when Jesus was walking this earth. This is actually an ancient problem. This is a problem that existed centuries before when Isaiah was walking the earth, ministering people when Israel was engaging in all kinds of false worship and maybe when they did engage in some kind of temple worship towards the one true and living God, it was found to be an empty shell. It was found to be something of lip service and their heart was completely and utterly far away from God. And if you were to go back even further, you'd find so many examples of how this happens throughout our history. And if you'd allow me to descend into sarcasm for a moment, it's a good thing that um, us in 2016 in an intelligent, intellectual city like Seattle, we don't deal with any kind of religious hypocrisy here, do we? We don't deal with that as Americans, do we? We're beyond something like religious hypocrisy. Now, this is a real problem that we all deal with. This is a text where when we come to it, it's one of those things where, at least in the past, when I've read before, there's times when, when I've been reading about the Pharisees and scribes, and I'm just like, man, what is wrong with you guys? What is, what's going on? And I've got to be honest, this text kicked my butt all week long. Because when I'm reading through this, I'm finding that I am in the same line of succession of hypocrites that has existed since the dawn of time. And this is exactly what we're going to be pulled into in this moment. This is why it's an intense text, because we're not just seeing it happen with the Pharisees. We're going to start seeing it happen with us. And look what this hypocrisy does. This propensity to have this idealistic view of who we are. This 
view that is not accurate with who we really are, but we continue to insist that it is who we are. Look what it does. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me. Hallow's Church, as image bearers of God, the highest, the highest value we hold is worship. At the end of all things, there's not discipleship. There's no preaching. There's no evangelism. There's no missions. There's none of that. At the end of all things, it's worship. It is the highest thing that we do as those made in the image of God. And this hypocrisy that's being addressed here, it destroys it. It erodes it. It kills it. And I was coming... I was coming to a head with that a little bit last night. In, in the midst of my preparation for a sermon, I will actually practice out loud. And here I am, I'm, I'm preparing for this sermon that the, the, ep, the epicenter of it is, is worship and how our hypocrisy erodes it. And here I am as I'm preparing for this sermon. And you want to know what one of the greatest uh, of my concerns was at the moment? It was, how am I going to come across to people? It wasn't, how, how is this word going to be received into your hearts? It wasn't, how is this word transforming my heart? It was, gosh, how is this going to go? How is this going to come across? Am I going to come across as incapable or incompetent or whatever it may be? And at this moment, when I'm preparing to preach, I saw my own hypocrisy. And so last night, God led me into a, a time of just worship. He was returning me to this place where... I was allowing my own hypocrisy to erode my worship and he would return me back to that moment just last night. But this is what it does to us. At the very core of who you are is a worshiper and this hypocrisy destroys it. And the reason why it's so dangerous to our worship is we see in the second half of verse seven, Jesus accuses them of teaching as doctrines the precepts of men saying things that people say and saying that God said it. This is what such and such person says is, and then saying that that is on the same level as what God is saying, but not just that. Verse 8, neglecting the commandments of God and holding the tradition of men. And what this tells us is why it's so dangerous and why it erodes our worship. This hypocrisy that we're looking at here is it depreciates who God is and it elevates who we are. When we look at this issue of ceremonial cleanness, I mean, why, why does it matter? I mean, if you could imagine being a Jewish person and you had to go through all of these steps, maybe you were a Levite, and you had to go through all of these steps just to enter into the presence of God. You had to go through all these washings, you had to wash your clothes, you had to uh, maybe there had to be some kind of sacrifice involved. What you would eventually pick up if you're really paying attention is when, when you ask yourself, why do I have to keep doing this? You would eventually pick up the fact that this God must be very different from me. This God must be so beautiful, so holy, so radiant and perfect and magnificent and pure that to go into his presence, something in me has to change. Not him, but something in me. And so when it comes to destroying our worship, 
Our hypocrisy depreciates who God is. It sees him as less beautiful. It sees him as less pure. It sees him as less holy and less radiant and less magnificent. And it continues to paint us in a higher position. And which is why they would neglect the commands of God and holding to the tradition of men. They would begin to value the opinion of people over the, over the opinion of what God says. And this, when we, if you're at all in a place where you're beginning to examine yourself when you're hearing these words, it's going to start to feel, it's going to start to feel heavy. It's going to feel a little bit like a mess. Because when you, start to, when you start to follow that thread of our own hypocrisy, you'll come across something that you realize that you've definitely been engaging in this. But even if you were to deal with that and you continue to follow the thread, what are you going to find? You're going to find more. And it can become such a heavy and burdensome thing, which is why I'm so glad that in this last section, starting in verse 9, we're going to begin to see how Jesus is unveiled as the sufficiency for this problem. Our hypocrisy is completely insufficient for engaging and entering into the presence of God as ritually clean and pure people. But we're going to see once again that Jesus is sufficient. We've got a little more digging to do. Verse 9. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep your tradition. Now, the language used here, setting aside the commandment, you also see something similar to this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. And what this writer would say is that anyone who sets aside the law of Moses, speaking specifically about something within the first five books of the Bible, anyone who sets that aside dies without mercy on just one or two witnesses. And all throughout the Bible, you see that when you set aside the commandment of God, instead of beholding it, instead of, instead of allowing it to come to bear upon your life, when you just push it aside, when you and I push it aside, we are sinning. And it doesn't matter. It, you know, when we look at these Pharisees and what they're doing, there's, not, there's, there's hardly any commentator, there's hardly any historian that would look at this group of people, these Pharisees and, and these scribes, and not say that they were, they were sincere. They were passionate. They were zealous about what they were doing. And you could even argue that they had some kind of good intention involved because they wanted people to approach God. But what we're finding out is none of these things are sufficient because any time we set aside God's commands, it's sin. And so it doesn't matter the level of sincerity involved in your own heart or in someone else. I know that in our culture, sincerity and authenticity is very highly valued, but it isn't the only thing. Good intentions are not the only thing. And you can't deny that in this culture, these Pharisees and these scribes, they had a real human authority in the midst of this people, but not even this human authority is enough. It's not sufficient when it sets aside the word of God. And how many times I recently have had friends engage 
in sinful activity, setting aside the word of God because they've fallen prey to different kinds of teachings. They fall in prey to people who have really good book sales, a really convincing, uh, really convincing tweets or blog posts. So they maybe have written a really nice paper as a, a, th- a thesis or a dissertation or whatever it may be. There's all kinds of human authority bound up in this person. And then they say something and they set aside the word of God and we just our hearts just run after them because we're just so impressed with them. And I've been heartbroken over the past month to see dear friends follow after in that, and it's sin. Because human authority is insufficient when we set aside the word of God. In verse 10, Jesus is going to give an example, just like we commented from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. He's going to communicate that the wages of this sin, as it says in Hebrews, the wages of this sin... And setting aside the commandment of God is death. He tells them, verse 9, you're experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. That when James would say, if you are a transgressor or I am a transgressor at one point of the law, we have committed sin against the entire law. We are considered as lawbreakers, and the penalty of that sin is death. And he gives a specific example of how these Pharisees and these scribes have engaged in this type of activity through their manipulation. And he's going to say how they do it in verse 11. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have to help you is korban, that is to say given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. In this we see a picture of how these Pharisees, how these scribes, would seek to justify their sin with a false piety. And what this came about, there was a a practice in these days. It was called the Korban vow. And what people could do was they could take a piece of property, they could take maybe a piece of jewelry, they could take something valuable that they owned. And the moment they uttered the words Korban, it was considered as sacred and set apart for God. In most cases, what would happen is after their death, that piece of property or that valuable thing would pass on to the temple or would be sold and the the proceeds would be given, but the, the full execution of that vow would take place often upon the death of that person. But in the meantime, they could continue to utilize that property or that piece of jewelry or whatever it may be. And what Jesus does, he takes this, this vow that these this group of people values so much and he would show them how they are using that to manipulate God's word because imagine in a situation as Jesus would put it that our father or our mother needs help now our family we've never been in a situation like this before but we've had lots of friends who have been in situations like this where maybe their parents are elderly, their parents are sick, their parents are in a place where they need help and they can no longer care for themselves. And anyone who's ever been in that situation before knows that it's extremely costly. It costs money, it costs time, it costs emotional energy. Uh, to whatever extent you had some, um, some uh, 
whatever uh, standard of living you may have had at that moment in time, uh, that standard of living often cannot continue once you begin to care for your parents. Um, The trajectory of your 401k or whatever it may be, your savings, as it's going up, when you start to care for your parents and you're paying their medical costs, it can no longer do that. It's an extremely costly thing to care for our parents when they reach that place of old age. And Jesus would say, this is a way that you should honor your father and your mother. And what they would do in this situation is they would say, korban, over basically all of their stuff. And that way when mom and dad come around and they say, son or daughter, we, we, we need your help. We, we can't pay for this thing. We can't get to this place and do this particular thing that would really help us. We can no longer do these things. And, and then people would say, I'm sorry, I, I can't help you. My stuff is korban. It's, it's set aside for God. And it's this extreme form of manipulation where they're pitting God's word against itself so that they can justify their sin. And this is what we do, isn't it? We seek to justify our sin with these false forms of piety. We're setting aside the command of God, maybe in the area of our our sex life. The things that we engage in, the things that we look at. but, But to maybe smother that, to feel better about that. What do we do? Maybe we go to church. Maybe we read our Bibles. Maybe we engage in missional community. Maybe we go serve the poor. Maybe we do something like that. It makes us feel better about what we're doing on Saturday night before we go to church on Sunday. Maybe we're engaging in these things because throughout the week when we walk downtown or we walk in downtown Fremont and we pass homeless people, in our hearts we have this disdain towards them. We don't understand them. We don't know their story, but for some reason we don't like them. Or we have this, uh, we have this judgment towards them about, um, about how they got in that position. Or maybe we watch the news and whenever we, we see all this news about shootings and we start to have this unexpected or maybe expected anger towards a particular race and skin color, and, but, but to suppress that, we'll engage in some kind of activity somewhere else and we'll be sure to do that activity really, really well. This is what we do, right? This is our hypocrisy because this is exactly what's happening here. We seek not only to justify our sin with false piety. When he gets to verse 13, Jesus accuses them of invalidating the word of God by their tradition, which they have handed down. And they do many things like this. Not only are they setting aside the word of God, they're invalidating it. You know why we invalidate? You know why we seek to invalidate the word of God? Because it makes us uncomfortable. Because when we come face to face with the word of God, it shows us our sin. This is why, in some way, even though there was good intentions, I believe this was, this was one of the sinister parts of these traditions that were being built up. If you look at, at the way the oral law works, it tends to work like this. There's this command over here that God gives us, that God gives to his people. And maybe out of sincerity, we say, 
okay, we've got to keep that command or we definitely can't break that command. And so to make sure that we don't do this, let's, let's put something else up because if we don't do this, then we definitely won't do that. If we don't do B, then we definitely won't do A. But just to be sure, sometimes we'll, we'll even do, we'll put up B and C and D because if we, if, we, if we don't do these things or we can keep these, then we definitely will keep that. That's how the law worked. And this exists in all kinds of cultures and all kinds of different ways. But whenever people are insulated from the law, it doesn't allow us to come face to face with it and meet up with our shortcomings. And these are the reasons why we seek to escape it. These are the reasons why we seek to invalidate it. Why we try to push it aside. Why we try to make it that it doesn't matter. And one of the ways we do this is with false authority. Again, Maybe these teachers out there that tell us specific things about what God is really like or what Jesus is really like, and then we go to the Bible and it, it just doesn't look like it matches up. But, well, you know, they have a lot of authority. They're really good at what they do, so maybe I should listen to them. That's what the people were doing with Pharisees and scribes. These guys have a lot of human authority, so I guess we should listen to them, even though it's completely undermining and even invalidating God's word. I'm going to give you a couple of examples of how this can work in cultures. So I grew up in the South, and so I'm going to give you first, I'm going to, I'm going to first pick on the Southerners. So if there's any Southerners in the room, I'm sorry. Okay. So uh, growing up um, in the South, I had some experience with churches, and it was really interesting, and it was kind of... I received some, some whiplash in some ways when I would go to different parts of the country and I would, you know, it showed what the Southern culture was really like. But there's this, this thing down in the South that uh, it's not every church, but I've seen in a lot of places that when someone drinks, it's considered a sin. The moment you take that glass of wine or you take um, that really nice beer um, and it touches your lips, and you're drinking it, boom, sin. You are a sinner. Now, how the heck did that happen? Because in the Northwest, we definitely don't believe that, do we? I mean, Hallow's MCs sometimes serve a glass of, you know, a, a dinner wine with dinner, you know. Um, now, how did that happen? Because when you look at the scriptures, you don't see that. Well, in the scriptures, you see some things like, you know, you shouldn't get drunk, and you also see things like what Paul wrote when he said, don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what he was communicating was that as the people of God, we should not be controlled by substance, but we should be controlled by the dynamic power of the living God inside of us, the Holy Spirit. And not only that, it says that you know, we should be considerate of other brothers and sisters in our midst when we're engaging in our freedom as Christians, right? So that means maybe in a missional community where's, where we would typically have a glass of wine uh, while we're studying the word or something, maybe we know that someone is coming who's a new Christian, they have a background uh, of really struggling with alcohol, and as a new Christian, maybe the Holy Spirit is telling them that if you were to engage in drinking, you would not do so in faith and you would be sinning. And so how would this missional community respond to that person? Would this missional community say, oh, well, you need to get over it and let us exercise our freedom? Well, then they would be sinning because they're not exercising faith out of the law of love and so on. And so you see how this issue can get kind of complicated around drinking. 
and we come face to face and we see how much we have shortcomings when we're dealing with all of these issues. And so what do we do? Well, we, we don't like complicated things. We don't like having to really engage with God's word. So just give us more rules to follow, right? That's what has happened in many parts of the South. These rules get put up because we don't really know how to exercise Christian freedom. We don't want to be mature or whatever. And I'm not trying to pick on them, but this is what I experienced. Layer upon layer, insulating from the Word of God. And then it gets all the way out and says, oh, well, now I just can't drink. So that's one example. Now we're going to pick on Northwesterners. It's their turn. So Jesus said this really great thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, uh, you shouldn't judge or else you'll be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. That's legitimate, right? This is something that Jesus said. This is a part of what he's communicating to people. It's valuable. It's meaningful. It's real. So as people, we better be very careful about how we, ex- ex- uh, how we uh, exercise judgment in this world, especially remembering the fact that when another person sta- dies and stands Um, to be judged one day, it will not be before us, it will be before God Almighty, who sees all things and before his eyes nothing is hidden, okay? So there is that degree of care care and even fear and trembling that we um, exercise when we hear that scripture, but that's not the only thing that Jesus has ever said, right? That's not the only thing. Paul, the Holy Spirit would communicate through Paul that the church was supposed to judge each other. They were supposed to um, call out each other's sins and deal with these issues that were happening in the church so that it didn't become like some poison within the church. And in the past, in the Old Testament, we would see God calling out to his people through the prophets, these people who lived in the midst of all kinds of different cultures, with people who engaged with all kinds of different religion and worship of all kinds of different gods. He said, this people is destroyed for lack of knowledge. Their failure um, to navigate the world that they lived in properly, executing the right kind of judgment so that they wouldn't fall into the patterns of everybody else. So there's a lot more to this statement, uh, don't judge or else you'll be judged. There's a lot more there, but once again, we don't like complicated, do we? We don't like complicated because it shows us we don't have a handle on things the way we thought we did. So what do we do? We put up layers. We insulate ourselves from the command of God, and we say, okay, to make sure I don't do that, I definitely can't talk about that group that type of person. We put up another layer. I, I can't talk about that because I don't want to be afraid of judging and you know, I really care about what that person thinks and then layer, layer, and layer. And then what we have arrived at in our culture is a, is a people that's terrified to make a judgment about anything or any person at any time. We're so afraid to say what we believe because we're afraid we're judging. We're so afraid to call sin, sin because we're afraid we're going to be judging So it's not just the Southerners, right? Southerners are cool people. They got their issues. Northwesterners are cool people. We got our issues too, right? This is how this works. And this is why we try to hide from it. This is why hypocrisy is such a big deal to us. This is why we seek to invalidate the word of God by appealing to some false authority. This is why we seek to justify our sin 
by appealing to some false piety that we have and we're exercising in some other place. And again, when we get after it like this and we try to untangle this massive knot of our own hypocrisy, it's pretty ugly, isn't it? Some of you are already thinking about how am I exercising the same type of thing in my own life? Where, where am I practicing some kind of conviction that if I were to go and read the Bible, it's not even in there? But it's because someone else said it. Or it's because the authority of my culture has said it. And it's kind of a mess. And if we travel down that road long enough, it can, it can feel kind of despairing because gosh how do we ever overcome things like this and this is where I think it's so amazing what Jesus does in this moment it's so good so good I want you to turn back to me turn turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 29 again this was a people in these days in the days of Isaiah who probably weren't all that different from what Jesus was dealing with in his day. In verse 13 is where we see the part that Jesus quotes, and I'll go ahead and read it. Then the Lord said, Because this people draws near to me with their words and honors me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. We'll stop there. Jesus brought that up for a reason, all right? He brought that up to bring everybody who is hearing. We're going to find out that it's not just Pharisees and scribes in this moment. There's a crowd that's present. He wants everybody to hear this. He takes it back to Isaiah 29, 13, and he's putting this people in the same spot that they were back then. And I think there's a reason why, because we've got to keep reading. Verse 14, therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. Jump down to 17, it is not yet just a little while before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field, and the fertile field will be considered as a forest. And on that day the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless will come to an end, and the scorner will be finished. Jump down to 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now turn pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who err in mind will know the truth and those who criticize will accept instruction. Did you catch that? In the face of this people's hypocrisy, God, through the prophet Isaiah, makes a promise that one day, and it's not in, at all based on their own goodness, right? In fact, the, that he would use therefore to begin verse 14 is just insane to me. But it shows God's grace. This is what God would say to this people, and in response to this, what would God do? 
he would do a marvelous act of grace that is completely beyond anything that they would ever deserve and what's the language of what God promises them in the future? Well, let me rehash it. Gladness. They would be in awe of God. They would sanctify him. They would rejoice in him. And you know what that is the language of? That's the language of worship. So this people's hypocrisy being eroded, sorry, this people's hypocrisy eroding their worship, what would God do? He would restore their worship to him. And did you catch what else was there? What else was in the midst of God doing this? It's amazing. The deaf will hear and the blind will see. Who does that sound like? That sounds like Jesus. That Jesus in this moment, he's calling to mind right in the face of these people. He's calling to mind this old promise. And get this, what makes it even more powerful, I think, is verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Who wrote that? Moses did, but who gave it to him? God did. And who's standing right in front of them? God is. God is standing right in the face of this people doing the same thing that they've always done. And he's standing right in their face and he's saying, and because of your offense, you deserve to die, but what is he not doing? He's not killing them. And instead, what would happen? Jesus would go to his own death. As we continue to follow the course of the gospel of Mark, this Jesus would go to a Roman cross. And on this Roman cross, the scriptures say that this is according to the predetermined plan of God, that all of the wrath and all of the anger that is just that God has towards our sin and towards our hypocrisy and the spreading of our hypocrisy to other people would pour on Jesus instead. And in the course of that happening, it would say that in the temple, there's this thing called a veil. And this veil was to separate the most holy place from everything else. And in the most holy place was the place where God's people were told they can encounter the presence of God himself through the high priest. But what would happen when Jesus is hanging on a cross, being brutalized and suffering for our sin? That veil would be ripped in half, symbolizing forever our entry into the presence of God and the restoration of our worship because by his wounds we are healed and by his being pierced we are cleansed and forgiven. And so in the moment of Jesus engaging their hypocrisy, he is also extending once again a unbelievable amount of grace towards them, reminding them of promises of old and the fact that in his presence these promises are being fulfilled And amen to that. This Jesus is the one who forgives our sin, who forgives our hypocrisy, and he cleanses us so that we might have the right to enter into God's presence again, to worship him as we were meant to worship. And in us dealing with the very long and seemingly endless thread of our own hypocrisy, he's the only one who gives us hope that that has been dealt with and that has been forgiven. And it's this moment I find it appropriate to turn our attention to the table.
At this moment, church, we have the opportunity to remember this truth with a tangible reminder. The scriptures say that we come under the blood of Jesus, that we are cleansed by him, that we are forgiven by him when we repent of our sins and we have trusted in his death and burial and resurrection for our forgiveness and for our life. If you have done that, if you're a Christian, we invite you now to this table as we continue to worship. And as you come up, praise God that he has forgiven our hypocrisy. And as you hold the cracker symbolizing his body given for you and as you dip it into the juice symbolizing his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins, rejoice in him taking that away from you, taking that away from us. And in the future when you encounter your own hypocrisy again, that it will be cleansed even in the future. If you're not a Christian, we want you to take this table with us one day, but for now we ask you to refrain. And we have placed some prayers in the worship, God, that you received on your way in. Take a moment to meditate on those prayers. And ask God, if you're not a Christian, ask him if this is true. Be willing to deal with the hypocrisy you see in yourself. And be willing to consider the fact that Jesus can take it away from you. And there's also a prayer in there that if you are ready to receive him by faith, please do so. And if you do, come find one of us afterwards, not only so that we can pray for you, that we can rejoice with you, and then one day again, take this table with you in the future. So at this time, I'm gonna pray for us and the table is open. Father, we thank you for your grace. God, thank you that you use people like us in our hypocrisy and in our weakness, God, you transform us, you make us new and you cleanse us and you remove our sins, our hypocrisy from us as far as the east is from the west. Thank you for this truth, God. And I pray my, my family within the Hallows Church can come to this table, albeit a sober moment. I pray, God, that you would fill them with joy at your salvation. God, thank you for being so good. Thank you for being a good father, a good savior, and a good king. And we love you, Jesus. Amen.